Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. This episode was sponsored by the PVS Studio team. It promotes static code analysis methodology in general and its PVS Studio tools in particular. Static code analyzers allow you to find bugs in source code at the development stage. This helps to reduce the price of fixing them. PVS Studio performs code analysis and issues warnings on the fragments of code with a high probability of having bugs and potential vulnerabilities in them. The tool supports C, C++, C Sharp, and Java, and it can work with Visual C++, GCC, Clang compilers, and some of those used for embedded systems. The analyzer works on Windows, Linux, and macOS. PVS Studio can both be used as a standalone tool and integrated with Visual Studio, IntelliJ IDEA, SonarCube, and so forth. In the show notes, you can find links to the PVS Studio website and the article, Technologies Used in the PVS Studio Code Analyzer for Finding Bugs and Potential Vulnerabilities. When you have a huge backlog of possible features to implement in your app, you may be tempted to create a plugin model so that other people can modify it. However, this path is trickier than it seems. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things you need to plan out before trying to make your app support a plugin model. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Oh, well, it's not that I've been fighting. It's that uh, my dog almost got into a fight today with a big old German shepherd. Hmm. My old dog did. Dog came running up in the yard and my old dog, I guess, thought I was at risk and lost her mind and jumped and I mean it's like this dog is 15 and a half that's like grandpa like swinging his walker at somebody like that's just not you know it's not a thing that you need to have happen other than that I mean it's been an hour since the last episode we recorded I really don't have any updates <laughs> you know, like I was sitting here and I looked at that blank and I'm like I really have nothing you know because we've recorded four episodes in two days so we got a lot going on the last few weeks and you've got a lot coming up yeah, so we're trying to get ourselves a little bit ahead for what we're expecting to be a, a busy next couple of months. Yeah, you realize that we are, as of this recording, three weeks away from our end of the year recordings. Yeah. Two weeks. I'm sorry, two weeks away from that. Yeah, that's kind of exciting. I can't believe we've made it through another year. Yeah, especially with the lack of planning we did this year. We started off so well, we really did, and then it just fell apart. Like things got crazy. Yeah. So like uh, we tried so hard. We got so far. Never mind. Now who's throwing out the lyrics? Yeah, that's me. I got to troll you a little bit. So how about you? What have you done in the last hour? It's been amazing. <laughs> I'm stressed. Like a syllable or like a postal worker? Somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get a normal week for anything, man. There's always something coming up. I mean, I've talked the last few weeks about the things that have been going on, but it's the inconsistent inconsistency that's stressing me out. Yeah. Like, if I expected it to be inconsistent, that would be fine. Yeah, but when you can't it's, make a plan at all. Yeah. I think what's stressing me out is that I had consistency until about a month ago, and then a bunch of stuff 
start happening. And then I had to catch up from that. And I just, I have not been able to get back into that. And then I was like, this week was supposed to be my first normal week and stuff's already come up where I'm not going to get to do that. Yeah. I hate making plans and then having to cancel them at the last minute because something comes up that's like completely unavoidable. Yeah. Or where you can't make plans at all because you know yeah. everything's a dumpster fire, but you're not sure how. And I've been dealing with that last couple of weeks and it stresses me out. Yeah, you know, like I can work an 80 hour week and be less stressed than I can be working a 20 hour week when I don't know when the 20 hours are. Yep. I completely get that. I mean, once in a while, that's not a problem, but it's like I said, it's been every week for over a month now. And I'm like, I need to get back on a regular schedule. It's driving me crazy. At least by the time this episode airs, it will come out the week after Thanksgiving and I'll have had that break and be planning my Christmas activities. That's something fun to look forward to. And since it's coming out in December, and that's just a fun month all around, really. I enjoy I enjoy December. I've got something a little bit different for book club this month. The world always seems brighter when you've made something that wasn't there before. Neil Gaiman. This month, we're doing something a bit different. Instead of a tech or business book, I've picked one of my favorite fiction authors, Neil Gaiman. His book, Art Matters Because Your Imagination Can Change the World, is a collection of speeches, poems, and creative manifestos combined into a small book about the importance of creativity and art. It's illustrated by Chris Riddle. The material in the book is very thought-provoking. You may or may not agree with the author. I find myself doing both throughout the whole thing, but he will get you thinking about the topics. The first section is titled Credo and is about the longevity of an idea. In it, he talks about his beliefs on beliefs and even says it's okay to disagree with him. It's a good setup for the rest of the book because he does get you know, very particular about a few things. It's a really thought-provoking, fun book talking about creativity. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? We got an email from Robert Harden saying, podcast is going well, it seems. Good job with that. Thanks, Robert. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. If an application is around for long enough, eventually the users will want to modify the behavior of that application for themselves. If your application is of sufficient size, it quickly becomes impossible to cover every use case that your users might have, whether it is the import and export of data, integrations with other systems, or additional functionality. It's hard to predict how your end users will want to use your application in production, especially over time. This is especially true if you're writing code for the enterprise, as larger companies tend to have their own teams of developers. Especially. Yeah. While you can just throw together a plug-in system and call it a day, 
that's an approach that is likely to end poorly. Not only does such an approach lead to potential security nightmares, but it can also create stability problems in your application. Further, if you design your plugin model poorly, it can cripple your ability to make changes to your application for the rest of your users. Your clients might also find it difficult to develop and maintain plugins for your system, causing it to be a waste of time for everyone. Finally, a bad plugin model can also result in your clients wasting their time and coming to resent your application. Really, it's better to avoid having a plugin model for your application if you aren't going to do it correctly. If you still want to build a plugin system into your application, there are some things you need to kind of plan out. The items that are of greatest concern will vary a lot depending on what your application does and what sort of environment it's going to be running in. However, there are certain considerations that will always come up when building a plugin model, regardless of the application in question. We're going to talk about some of these so you have a good starting point when you design your own system. The first one is the business value of a plugin system is important to understand. Yeah, if you don't understand why your employer wants a plugin system, not the other programmers, but your employer, make sure that they actually do want it. You don't understand enough to actually start writing one. There's a business reason for doing it. If you don't know, you got nothing. Mm -hmm. Don't negotiate on this. You'll be blamed for any design decision you make if you made a bad assumption. Yeah, and all assumptions are bad. There are widely different security and runtime things that you're going to have to consider based on the business goals. In other words, who's going to be using this thing is one of the big ones because you just don't know. There's a lot of reasons that a company might want to do a plug-in system. You know, you may have a situation where enterprise clients want to extend the application and they don't want to pay for custom development from your company. Your company might want to enable third parties to integrate with your app in general. This might be an effort to build an ecosystem around your product or turn it into a platform. And you'll always hear a CEO talk about platforms and they don't really understand what goes into that. Yeah, I have experienced that. Yeah. <laughs> What's frustrating on that is when they don't understand what goes into it, but they keep pushing it until you go, all right, this is what it's going to take. Yeah. I still want it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want it to take that. Yeah. Well, go to Scrooge McDuck and get a loan. Okay. Like leave me alone until you have that because it's expensive. Another one is that your company wishes to build their own plugins and sell them as optional upgrades to your product. Well, that's kind of a cool idea in the idea world. Yeah. And you, know, you may use that architecture to go, hey, I just want to be able to drop the thing in there if they have it and the system wind it up and know that it's there and react accordingly. So you'll see that sometimes. Another one you'll see is where a company thinks that they're a platform and they want to build a marketplace around plugins for the product and get a commission every time a plugin is sold. They're always going to lose money doing this unless they're Google, no. by the way. Or like they have to be a really big company that you've heard of. If they aren't, this is probably not going to fly. Also, it could be your company wants to enable vetted strategic partners to build plugins for your application. Right. And this is a case where they'll have some strategic partners that, you know, they let them build the plugin and the strategic partner then helps to sell the product because it helps to sell their integration as well. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there's reasons for this. You need to know which of these it is because there's a lot of stuff you got to think about going in. Yeah. On that, how you build your plugin system will vary greatly based on what business value you're attempting to create. If the general public will be writing plugins that are used by the general public, 
you're going to have to have a lot of infrastructure in place for discovery. Plus, you're going to have to spend a lot of time on security. Yeah, don't trust the general public for this. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, like, I mean, if you're at the if you're at the level where you can ignore my advice on this, and you know, by all means. But if you think that you might not be, then you probably are at the level where you need to listen to me. Don't do this. If your application is a software as a service application and it's multi-tenant, you're going to have to spend a lot of time on security in general, even if the plugin doesn't live on your system. Plus, you got to make sure that plugins don't degrade system performance for the rest of your users. Mm-hmm. Now, if enterprises are going to be building your plugins, you need to make them easy to debug and troubleshoot or have an entire call center for the calls you're going to get. Yeah, because your help desk is fixing to get swamped with really, really technical calls that take a lot of time and your people probably are not prepared. Mm-hmm. So you got to make it where these people don't call you or you're going to get nailed. Yeah. If you're going to build a plug-in marketplace, you're going to have to worry about things like fraud. You're going to have to spend a lot more time on security. Like if people are buying plugins through the system and you know that's part of your company's strategy, Odds are good that the higher-ups don't realize how difficult this actually is. Mm-hmm. And so you better start thinking about it. And another one, if strategic partners are going to be building plugins, you're going to have to have a good way of actually vetting the plugins for security and other issues, and you're probably going to need development staff deeply involved to help them. So we've talked about it multiple times already. And let's just get into the biggest thing on here, and that is security. Yeah. So if you're writing a plugin, it basically needs to live in some kind of sandboxed environment outside the app. Now, your app may load it up, but it can't have access to everything. Mm-hmm. Unless you can completely trust the author of the plugin and prove that the plugin came from that author, it has to be in a separate security context from the rest of your app because you can't trust them. Well, this basically means your plugins will have to be signed and verified. You know, even if you do trust the guy. You'll also likely need a permission system around plugins. This means that once the plugin is verified, you have to check against some data source in the system to determine what actions it can take. Right. So for instance, they may have a plugin that does, I don't know, emailing, does some template formatting and does an email. You may want to say, hey, this thing can't touch the content delivery network because why should it? Like that check needs to be there and it only needs to have things toggled on that it's Mm -hmm. actually allowed to do. Because if somebody breaches your strategic partner or whatever, whoever's writing that plugin and gets it into your system, now you're breached too. Otherwise. What that means is it's got to be kept from having open access to the entire system. Yep. And that means writing APIs that plugins will use. And those APIs will have to validate permissions as well. Right. And this means also killing any plugin that has too many failed calls because you've got to disable it to limit abuse of the system. Like they can't just keep trying to get in. Now, if your plugins are created by the general public, you'll also need to watch their upgrade paths. (laughs) Yeah, we have been burned by this. Yep. WordPress is notorious about this and some of the other content management systems are as well. Like a plugin will get upgraded and the new version has vulnerabilities or has malicious code in it. Yeah. Uh, what happened to us was the company that owned the plugin sold it. Yeah. But I think they sold their name too for it or something. So it didn't like change the name 
Right. So when it when it got updated, there was malicious code added into it. And there was another one that got hit, I think, with a security vulnerability, it seems like, that was added or something. We've been hit multiple times with this stuff. So it's a pain. And if you're doing a plugin system, you're going to have to have a means of validating plugins and warning people who are using ones that are dangerous. Like your users, you're going to have to tell them because otherwise they get nailed and you're the company that's the vendor. And so they're going to come to you for you know any problems that occur. So it can get really expensive really quick. Probably the next most important thing after security is system performance. Yeah, plugins may cause issues with system performance uh, just in general because you know they're not part of your system, so they're not optimized for the way your system actually works. They know what you tell them, and they form a mental model of how your system works, and sometimes they get surprised. A really poorly written plugin can consume a lot more system resources than is acceptable. You know, they can be really slow due to the developers not understanding your system and doing stuff in an inefficient way. Yeah. You know, this can include everything from polling loops to like bad threading to wasting database connections. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that can go wrong. And you're going to need a way to prove that the plugin is the problem, not your code. Right. Because a lot of people won't do that. They'll just go, oh, here's a plugin model. And then when it crashes, your app gets blamed. This is also interesting if you're running a SaaS because you have to make sure that plugins, even if they're not on your servers, can't hurt performance for other users. So like, for instance, you may have a plugin that's running on another server, but it's a plugin, you know, in air quotes to your app. Your app's not loading it up, but it's interacting with it. Yeah. It knows the webhooks and all that kind of stuff. If that thing is calling your server too much, you've got to make that stop. You're going to have to rate limit that so that they don't take down the servers for everybody else. Mm-hmm. This requires significant investment in instrumentation to make sure you can catch performance issues proactively. Right. Like you don't want to wait till they happen. You want to catch them before they happen. And you need to put the effort into that. Yeah. If you catch them when they've happened and your system's already down, you bring the system back up, the API goes back up, your system goes back down. Yeah. Like you need to see that when it's at 20% of the demand curve and go, okay, this thing's going to break the server. Yeah, deal with that appropriately. And that probably means some rate limiting or something along those lines. You also need to be able to quickly kill access for plugins that are causing performance issues. So if you are authing these plugins, there needs to be some part of that that says, hey, this is called on behalf of this user for this plugin. And you need to be able to say, hey, this plugin's a problem and it's breaking our system. We're not allowing access from that at the present time. Mm-hmm you probably should never host user-built plugins on your server in a SaaS environment. Yeah, I've heard discussions where people are talking about doing that. And it's like, okay, are you going to let some random tech bro in off the street and let him walk into your data center and plug in a USB drive and run code off of it? Because if you won't allow that, you cannot do this. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not secure enough to be able to stop him from damaging everything in that data center, including stuff that isn't yours. Yeah. This takes more investment than most companies are willing to make in order to keep from having the problem. In general, the risk of breach in a SaaS product hosting plugins from the general public is just too high. Yeah, I mean, do you see Google doing this? Like out of all the companies out there who might consider something like that and be capable of pulling it off, the folks that I think of first as being capable of doing that aren't doing it because it's insane. Yep. That tells me all I need to know. Just with all the other stuff that Google does, like if they're if they're shying away from this, I don't want to touch it. Mm-hmm. And speaking of stuff that doesn't need to get touched, 
User permissions are another thing you're going to have to consider. If your plugins are user-facing or they touch end-user data, then you're probably going to need to build a permission model for the user's data as well. So not only do you restrict the plugins as far as what system actions they can take, but the users interacting with that plugin may also need to restrict those things as well. Yeah, you got to tell them, can't touch us. Right. Uh, (laughs) Man. I was just waiting for you to stop talking. Yeah, I mean, if they don't have permission, you got to drop the hammer on them. (laughs) We should just keep running with that. Just just keep going, you know? Like, it's not going to be any worse. This means that plugins have to assert permissions before they take an action. And it also means that any calls a plugin is making will need to check permissions, which means they need to have something that indicates who the user is that it's taking an action on behalf of so that you can check and make sure that, yeah, they can actually do that. Yeah, be very careful about what happens after permissions check fails. Make sure this doesn't make your application unstable. Right. So, for instance, if the plugin is sitting in between two of your processes and a permission check fails, what happens then? Does the data flow on and possibly break something because now it's partially valid or it's invalid or you know something weird happened? Or does it go back? and possibly break some other process that called into here because if you're integrating, you probably already have webhooks and all kinds of other stuff wired in too. It gets complicated. Yeah. As you get into this and you have to have those, I guess, kind of checks and balances. This is where you want to validate your inputs, you know, your preconditions and your post conditions. Yeah, if only we had a an episode about that that we just recorded tonight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> funny how that works. Yeah, the other thing is is you're going to have to make sure that user permissions are fairly granular because you don't want your users to simply select all permissions so that you go away. Mm-hmm. You know, because if they don't check this box, nothing works, and if they do check it, all their data's op- you know out in the open. Like that's not a good system. And this means that plugins typically are going to have to have some kind of manifest indicating the permissions that are required. So like if you write a Chrome browser plugin, you have to put a manifest in there saying what permissions you want your plugin to have. And if you don't ask for those, you don't get them. And the user has to agree to give your plugin those permissions or it won't run. Yeah. You also need to make sure you clearly explain what those individual permissions mean. Right. So read permission, that's not a good name. It needs to be read what? Mm-hmm. Okay, they can touch all your documents and send them to you know foreign governments and hackers in the Fertile Crescent somewhere. Probably don't want to say it quite like that unless that's actually what your plugin does. But you need to express it very clearly. It doesn't need to be some junk programmer thing that's like read, write, update, delete because the general population does not understand that. Yeah. It's also possible if your app allows users to share data that the plugins will need asset-level permissions as well. For instance, let's say that you're making a plugin for Insta. You might need permissions at the user level, but there might also need to be restrictions for what users can do with a friend's data. Yeah, this was the thing on Facebook that actually you know, was one of the things involved in the uh, Cambridge Analytica mess, was that people would install that app and it would get their friend's data Mm. that was publicly visible to them because they trusted their friend. But it's like, hey, it's the friend and their skeezy little buddy over here in the trench coat that happens to be an app. Oh, yes, I do vaguely remember this. Yeah. Now, another thing that's going to hurt 
when you have a plugin model is the plugin is going to have an upgrade cycle and it will never match that of your app. Never, ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be super duper annoying the entire time you're dealing with it. Your users may be reluctant to update your software if it's going to break any plugins they're using. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Apple just went through this with the Mac OS Catalina because it's enforcing 64-bit. Just now. Okay. Just recently. It'll be probably old news by the time this episode airs, but it was just about a month ago I started seeing it pop up in the church tech and media groups I'm in on Facebook where people will be like, hey, have you guys upgraded? We upgraded and none of these plugins work because they're all 32-bit. What software works with it? They've gotten upgrades for most of the major things, but you got to look at it. Like I can't upgrade my my work laptop because my VMware is 32-bit. Oh, that'll be all kinds of fun to move over to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is the life of a person hosting a plug-in platform yeah you know and what happens if that company's gone out of business and the plugin still does what people want they just don't want to upgrade yep it's going to get to the point where they don't want to upgrade your stuff and now you can't update your apis inside your own app and your own systems because your users are still using them because of some plugin vendor Mm -hmm. i have heard of companies developing like their own versions of a plugin yeah, like adding it into the newer version because the company went out of business, but people were still using that plugin. Yep, and so the system added all the functionality into it. It was like just to get people to upgrade. Yeah, and think about the fun that happens when your app has a security vulnerability, but part of fixing that causes the break of a plugin that's no longer maintained. Yeah, that happens to WordPress people periodically. It's really, really hard to deal with. Really. When you do an update, you may have to disable old plugin versions upon an upgrade or to force an upgrade of the plugin, which obviously means like having a package manager in the mix somewhere. Mm -hmm. You may also want to consider pausing application updates until the user either removes incompatible plugins or all plugins have compatible versions available. Yeah. That can be problematic too if you have security issues that you have to fix. Yeah, and of course, what you do then is you send all those users an email and you say, hey, I know you're using this plugin. They won't let you upgrade. And here's a security vulnerability that we have fixed and you're going to get nailed if you don't dump this plugin. Mm -hmm. You end up in an adversarial relationship with the plugin authors, which may or may not be something you want to do. But it's really easy to get backed into a corner with this. And there's other fun that happens here too. So like if a plugin upgrades, you also need to deal with changes in their required permission sets. Mm -hmm. So you got to check the manifest that comes with it if you did that, hopefully, and prompt the users to accept the needed permissions as they are now because you got to get permission from them. If they don't allow the new permissions, you need to figure out how to handle that. Yeah. And that's a whole other branch of your code and like, okay, well, there's this disabled plugin over here or it doesn't have all the permissions it needs. Does that mean it fails? Does that mean we don't make the app work? Like, What does that mean in the context of the app? And how much of that is out of your control is very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. It gets even better, though. (laughs) Your own upgrade cycle is also in the mix. So, for instance, you probably are going to make your permissions more granular over time. And so now, because of these plugins, you have to migrate existing permissions to suit what you're doing 
and you have to interpret what they were requesting in light of what your new permissions are. Mm -hmm. And so you end up deriving the new effective set of permissions. And this can get really weird because you have to prompt users at any change in permissions in order to make sure that the plugin really still has those permissions. Yeah. That something hasn't been slipped in and it gets weird. So next diagnostics plugins complicate everything. Yeah. But especially diagnostics. When you are logging events in your application, you might find that you need to extend your logging to get better diagnostics, especially when plugins are sending data to or receiving data from your application. Yeah, you're running into a situation where you don't entirely know what is happening. And it's very difficult to prove, especially if plugins are messing with data you know, during a workflow, it gets really weird because it's like, okay, why did my app crash? Was it the plugin or is it me? Also, plugins themselves need diagnostics. Any plugin in the app also needs a way to write log entries so that you can determine what's going on. Yeah. While you can catch a lot of activity in the logs for an API, if you build such an API, you may also want to expose APIs that allow plugins to write out to your logs in a safe manner as well. So that they can say, hey, the user selected this thing in the app. And that way, maybe you can trace it down and figure out what's actually happening. But if you do that, then you have the other fun of making sure that you are careful about how much data that the apps or the plugins write to your app. You know, really chatty plugins are apt to chew up all your disk space faster than you would think, especially if they're under heavy load. Mm-hmm. You probably need to expose logs from plugins to the developers of the plugins as well. You have to be willing to work well with your plugin developers if you're going to have a plugin system that's easy to use. Right. And this means giving them meaningful feedback about any errors that come up during you know, live execution of their code. Their own logs may not have all the data they need if they can even log the data at all. Like they may be running in a context that doesn't let them mm. write to a file somewhere. No. So since we're talking about logging, we might as well get into audit trails. That's always the segue to getting into audit trails. We might as well. Because <laughs> nobody goes, oh, that sounds fun. Let's jump in that rattlesnake pit. You know, nobody's really up for that. But snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Yeah, audit trails. Why did it have to be audit, audit trails? trails. <laughs> HIPAA. Why did it have to be HIPAA? Man. <laughs> if plugins are in the mix and can read or write data, you gotta have audit trails. Right. Uh, when data is lost or destroyed in your system by a plugin, you need to be able to prove that. Yeah, here's the deal. If you can't point the finger at somebody else, you get a finger pointed at you. Amen, brother. And you can choose which finger it is, but it's not pleasant. <laughs> you gotta have reliable audit trails that plugins can't tamper with especially if your app includes any risk of lawsuit or legal compliance, because you're going to be in front of regulators or in front of, you know, a judge or something like that. You got to prove within, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you did not cause the problem. Yeah. They're also important from a forensics perspective. If a plugin is compromised and does get access to data, you need that to be logged. This may help you discover vulnerabilities in plugins while those vulnerabilities are in use in the wild. I mean, this is just straight up defensive coding, man. Yeah. 
Or like, you know, when they start testing out vulnerabilities, you can go, hey, this plugin is getting a lot of weird traffic. Yeah. If you can do that and you can get a hold of the plugin author, you might actually be able to stop the problem before it really goes live. Because it's mm-hmm. gonna have, you know, visibility on your system to some degree. You you might catch it in time. You probably won't, but you might. Yeah. You should also put audit trails around any actions involving plugins. Right. This includes enabling and disabling plugins as well as updates. And especially if any changes to permissions occur, those have to be logged as well because you need to see okay, they don't have permission to this, but they wrote to it. Mm-hmm. That's real important to know something's really, really off because you know one of your programmers could have screwed up too. And you're going to get in the mix with these plug-in people and you're going to blame them and then find out that it was you. And oh, by the way, you put out a press release that, oh, these guys are screw-ups and it was actually your fault and now you get sued for libel. Yeah. So you just got to avoid that kind of fun. Another thing that will come up a lot is issues with compatibility. You'll eventually run into compatibility issues with any plugin system that you are going to use and pretty much any plugin that actually does anything. These can be relatively simple. It can be stuff like communication protocols changing, like all the TLS stuff that we went through. Was it last year, the year before, or both? It was. Seems like just a blur of like TLS crap there for a while there's a vulnerability and everyone had to update to at least like 1.2 or something yeah and i believe that was was that earlier this year or was that last year i think that might have been last year and then there were some other recommendations further on or something like that yeah i think it was before i moved so it was last year yeah but this happens or your plugin might be relying on stuff in a particular operating system and suddenly it gets unstable because that's a you know legacy call that they don't support anymore and you just found out about it. Yeah. But it's in your app or it's interacting with your app and it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Basically, you just got to remember that plugins have all the problems of any other software plus whatever problems they have from living in your runtime environment. Yeah. And that can be pretty severe, to be honest. You probably don't think about all of the things that can go wrong in your runtime. Yeah. Especially if the plugins are not necessarily written in your programming language of choice, or they're not written by people that understand that language very well. Mm -hmm. You can get some really, really strange things happen over time. Even just little, little changes to framework runtimes. And there's some, you know, something like an operator works a certain way. You know, like it handles, you know, overflow, you know, integer overflows this way. And they wrote something janky that counted on that. And now it's been changed because everybody's like, wait, that's dumb. Nobody else in the industry does it, but that plugin author doesn't use that programming language. And so they did it that way. Mm-hmm. And you get stuff broken all the time because of that. So you need to have very robust error handling around any calls that you make to a plugin. Right. An error in a plugin can never be allowed to take down your system. And that sounds simple, right? It sounds like just a try catch with a empty catch. Okay, we're good. <laughs> but think about what happens if that plugin is supposed to transform data and then it goes further into your process and then it hits a different plugin that transforms data and then it goes further in and it hits something else. It goes out to an external system and it was counting on those data transformations. How do you mitigate that? Yeah. And by the way, they have critical business processes running on it, so you can't just disable it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got, definitely got to log this. Yeah. And it usually means having something in place so that you can see a sudden spike in errors 
of this sort and some pathway for it to go down when this right. happens. And that includes recovery, right? So it yeah. may be a thing of let's log the calls that we're going to go to the thing and let's defer them until this problem is fixed and then we'll push it back at it if we can, mm-hmm. right? So you almost have a message queuing thing going on there. Yep. But sometimes you can't do that because they're critical within a time window and if they can't go, they can't go. You really have to understand the business deeply to be able to understand what you are going to have to do with the plugin mm-hmm. in these kind of cases. So now loading and unloading plugins. Yeah, it turns out that modifying programs at runtime is not exactly a whole lot of fun. And that includes loading and unloading things dynamically. Depending on the application architecture, this could involve a lot of complexity. For instance, in .NET, if you dynamically load an assembly into the current app domain, you can't unload it without unloading the app domain. So you got to create a separate one that you load stuff into and then broker calls across to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that what I said was true about .NET Core or not. I just know in Classic that it's that way. I haven't tried to do that in Core because it turns out it was so painful in Classic that I'm like, I'm not doing that again. Yeah, I haven't tried anything like that in Core either. Though the way core is built, they might have an easier way of doing it. Yeah, or they just may not allow it at all because Mm -hmm. it just hurts. But if you're doing stuff like dynamically loading a DLL, and then you go, okay, I've got a variable that has the memory address of this function that I'm going to call. Well, if I have to unload that DLL and load a new version, any variables that I created have to be reset. Yeah. I also have to make sure that nothing is transiting that DLL while that's happening. Mm -hmm. And so if I've got multiple threads running, it gets hairy really, really fast. And you're going to run into that with plugins. Now, if you don't allow hot reloading of plugins at runtime, this means you'll probably have to shut down the app and restart it to load the new plugin configuration. Right. And so for something like a game, that might be acceptable. But if it's an enterprise-level service, that may not be acceptable. Of course, they may have a maintenance window when this stuff happens. Mm -hmm. But just doing it on the fly because you might not be able to do that. And that includes if there's a security hole, they may put that off. Yeah. You have to be careful to pause any calls going into a plugin during a hot reload, unless you want to get some weird errors that (laughs) you're going to have a fun time trying to replicate. Right. I mean, because it's basically transactional. It's like, hey, this thing can't do this right now. Put it on hold. And oh, by the way, everything upstream of that has to be able to handle that. So you're talking async all the way down. And then you're talking, you know, blocking threads and all kinds of stuff for the amount of time that you are reloading a plugin. Like, this is serious. It's not something to be joking about. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Plugins also need to know when they're being asked to shut down. This is the same thing as like a Windows service or a, you know, Unix daemon, right? It needs to get a message that says, hey, I'm telling you to shut down. So start deallocating stuff and you've got a certain amount of time and then you're done. Mm-hmm. You don't get to hang there forever. You know, the plugin may have resources that it needs to deallocate. It might need to write log entries. It might need to flush buffers, finish up transactions in the database, those kind of things. And once you send a message that says, here, I'm telling you to shut down, you don't send any more data at the plugin because it'll be transiting the plugin and its code when that thing shuts down. Mm -hmm. After a window of time, then you completely shut down the plugin. Right. And you unload it. I mean, you got to give them a timeout because otherwise it's like, oh, they can just hang and say, oh, yeah, I'm still good and I'm still doing whatever I want to do. So this keeps programming errors from being a problem. If you allow plugins to shut down cleanly and clearly document how to do so, it's harder to blame you for the kind of errors that would occur otherwise. 
Right. So like it's halfway done and you just kill the plug in. And then now this transaction's messed up and somebody didn't get their delivery of Reese's peanut butter cups that they ordered. And it was going through that thing. Like you don't get blamed for it because they did something dumb and the docs say otherwise. If you don't do that, then it's you. Yep. And finally, we've reached the most enjoyable, most fun part of anything. And that is managing configuration. Plugins are likely to have configuration of their own. I wouldn't say likely. I would say are going to, really. Yeah. This could be anything from small items that need heavy security, like connection strings, to larger things like bitmaps. Right, like your user avatars, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. You probably don't want to store this stuff alongside your own app configuration, as that facility might be abused. Uh, For instance, they could store enough stuff in there to crash the app for everybody because, you know, it's a YAML file and they decided to put a two-hour video in there in Base64 encoded because they're dumb. Why not? Sure. Because people are like, uh, you know, at scale, people are idiots, right? Like it doesn't matter if, if an individual is smart. If you get enough people, the intelligence of the group degrades to be basically the IQ of the lowest person divided by the number of feet. (laughs) Okay. So like I promise you on this, like be really careful because you're going to get nailed if you're not. The other thing is if storage is going to happen on your servers, you have to be careful that you limit the amount of stuff that can be stored. You can't have a plugin that stores gigabytes of stuff and thousands of users are using it unless you allocated funding for that. Another one that's really nasty with the general public, because the general public can be kind of skeezy, you probably don't want to store any data from them if it's a plugin written by the general public, because you're going to end up with illegal stuff on your server. Yeah. Then your servers get seized by the FBI when they do an investigation and your business gets shut down for however long. Like you really have to think about this kind of stuff because people do things that are extremely unethical. Again, scale. It's just a it's a scaling issue. Plugins will probably need a few varieties of storage. For instance, there probably will need to be an instance-level storage for data that the plugin needs across the board while running in a particular environment. Right. So this is like URLs. This is database connections to say, hey, this is a production instance called a production endpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, Here's the address of the webhook you call when this happens. Here's all these other things. Here's credentials, whatever stuff you need. You know, and that would be different in test. And so since it varies, it's going to be in a storage location that varies. There will probably also be user-level storage where the plugin stores stuff on a per-user basis. Now, this may or may not be in your data. It may be somewhere else, but that's a thing that's going to happen as well. Your plugins might end up needing more than this because there may be a situation where the users have multiple accounts on some other service and you got to store stuff per account under that user. This may or may not be your problem. It may be the plugins problem, but it's a thing that could happen. The point here is that this can get really, really tangled and nasty very, very quickly because you just you just never know what a plugin is actually going to do and what it's going to need to store or what some goober is going to think that it needs to store. Yeah. Writing a plugin system that will do anything other than create nightmares is hard. There's a lot to consider, and most of it needs to be fully baked before you show it to anyone who might try to use it. In addition, when your app is hooking into other people's code, or vice versa, it exponentially increases the number of problems 
that you may experience in production while making it more complex to deal with them. Be very careful if you are ever told to make your application pluggable. It could be worth it, but it's not as easy to do it well as you might think. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? You know, if you listen to the episode, obviously we're kind of coming off as being anti-plugin. I guess that's partially true. It's not so much that we're anti-plugin, it's we're anti-doing it badly. Now, that said, don't go to your management person and go, okay, this is going to be really difficult or this is going to be really time-consuming. Management doesn't care about that. Especially the difficulty, they don't care about it because they'll say, well, if you can't do it, we'll hire somebody who can. And if you say this is complex in terms of time, they're not going to care because they think that's an excuse. So what you do is when you run into a situation like this, express these problems in a written fashion, aka do it by way of email in terms of risk to the organization. Keep the emails that you write about this sort of stuff in storage that you control that they do not. That way, if they try to force you to do something dumb, they can't throw you under the bus once they get caught. A plugin system like this is a great example. Companies will try to make you just do something that doesn't make sense and then act like it was your fault when it went badly. So if you're asked to do something like this, it's got a lot of risk and a lot of weird corners that people aren't thinking about. Get this documented and keep evidence that makes it clear who is at fault. If everything goes well and it goes perfectly and you never need it, that's great. But if you do need it, you're going to really need it because it's going to be a bad problem and you're going to get blamed. So I just want to throw that out there. Like, seriously, be really careful about this because this is like career ending danger level stuff. And that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.